Hey, uh, um, we're going to look at uh, 2 Peter. You thought we were going to finish a section of Hebrews, but we're going to take a pause for a moment in Hebrews. Uh, uh, Pastor Nick was uh, sort of working his way through chapter 2, and we thought it might be better if he finishes chapter 2, the thought of chapter 2 versus me. And, uh, and so I am going to do 2 Peter, which actually uh, pertains to the book of Hebrews, because part of the, the challenge in the book of Hebrews is that the people are... The, the, the people are being tempted to drift back to their old ways, back to Judaism, back to their old beliefs, their old way of thinking. And I, I don't know about you, but I know in our table group, we've talked about what does that look like for us? Like we, we aren't tempted by that necessarily, uh, but we are tempted to drift back. When things get hard, when things are difficult, or when, we're, when certain trials come into our lives, we're very tempted. There's, the temptation comes to resort back to things that are familiar, to old sinful habits, to old beliefs, uh, to old relationships. Uh, all of those things are a temptation. And when our, when our lives are not fully, completely uh, pressing into Christ and to know Christ, um, we are liable to be, uh, to be, to get off track. And so we've asked the question, I know in my table group, and I've had this conversation with many others, what do we do? What do we do to combat that? And really in 2 Peter chapter 1, that's really what Peter is writing to. He's, he's writing to some people who are going through tremendous difficulties uh, pressures that the church up to this point had never experienced before. And the, the, the Roman state, is Nero, is pressing in on the church, burning Christians at the stake. It's a, it's a very difficult time for the church throughout Asia Minor. In Cappadocia and Bithynia, you can go back to chapter 1 of 1 Peter and see all the different uh, places where, uh, these, where these churches were that he was writing to. And so he writes the second letter, though. So 1 Peter was written to encourage them, to remind them, to, to look to Christ, to, to hang tight, to stand firm in their faith in the midst of difficulties. But there was, in the meantime, after that first letter, there were some things that were still going on in the churches, and there were difficulties. And so he writes a second letter. And in this second letter, as he's writing to these suffering Christians who are facing difficulties, he's, he's going to address about four things, which we're not going to cover all of them. But, but the thing we're going to cover today is the first one, growth in godliness. Like He's going to encourage them to grow in godliness. In fact, the, the tagline, because of God's gracious gift, be diligent to grow in your faith. This is what he's going to encourage them in. He's, he's also going to help help them understand and just shore up their understanding that, that Scripture, God's Word, is not something that was invented by men, but it's, it's actually the very Word of God. Uh, moved, men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote down the very Word of God, and He's going he's gonna to address false teachers. See, in the midst of weaknesses and difficulties, there are all kinds of false messages and teachers that will creep in, and we are tempted when things are hard, especially, to believe those messages because they promise the world and they deliver nothing, right? And, and so we're tempted to go into those things, and so Peter's going to address those things in this letter, and then he's going to address the fact that people will mock the idea of Jesus' return. Sounds familiar to today, right? Very similar. There's nothing new under the sun, right? These are all things um, that, uh, that we face even today. And so that's what Second Peter is going to deal with, and I think it's going to help us wrestle with this morning. Um, how do we not drift spiritually? How do we, how do we stay uh, on track? How do we press in? 
and, and grow in our faith. So let's stand this morning as we read God's word. We're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read 15 verses, so bear with me here. Hang on. Uh, we're, we're going to do this as we hear God's word together. And we stand because it is God's word, as Peter is, is reminding them as well. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. That's a long sentence, isn't it? Power-packed. Breath, moment. All right, here we go. Verse 5. For this very reason, based on that long sentence... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be a rich reward. Uh, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, and are established in the truth that, that you have, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Father, thank you for your incredible word this morning. May it bring life to us. May it encourage and strengthen and even awaken uh, your church and awaken those who need to know you. And so, Lord, would you move today by the power of your spirit um, that we would go from here encouraged and pressing in further, that we would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as Peter says in chapter 3. And so, Father, be with me in these moments and be with us as we walk through your word in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. When the Apostle Peter penned these words, he no doubt uh, had in the back of his mind the words of Jesus in John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. And we know this, these, these words that Jesus spoke to him in John chapter 2, eight, verses 18 and 19, because of what he says in verses 12 through 15 in the opening statement of this, this letter in Second Peter, because he says that he, he wants to remind them of these qualities that we're going to talk about today. And, 
And he says that he wants to stir them up by way of reminder because he knows that the putting off of his body will be soon. And that's basically Peter's way of saying to them, look, I know that I'm going to die very soon. And why do I know this? Um, Because he says here, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, if you have your Bible, just for a second, let's turn over because it's important for us to kind of understand what is... What is in the back of Peter's mind? What is the pressing issue in his life as he's writing these these words to these suffering churches who are also suffering and he's about to suffer? And so in John chapter 20, I said 2, it's actually John 21, sorry, uh, verses 18 and 19. Listen to what Jesus told Peter um, before he was taken up. He said, truly I say to you, verse 18 of 21 of John, he says, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you, and they will carry you where you do not want to go. And then there's a note, this is said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. That's a powerful thing. And so Jesus directly gives Peter this insight. He's saying, Peter, when you were a kid, you, got the, you, were, you were free, man. You got to hang out. You got to dress yourself. You got to do cool stuff. But there's going to come a day, Peter, when you are old, there's going to come a day where others are going to dress you and they are going to lead you where you do not want to go. In other words, you're going to die, Peter. You're going to die for me. You're going to die for the sake of your faith. And in fact, we know through church history and we know through historical documents, what we could tell is that Peter did die, in fact, a horrific death. He, he was crucified and he was crucified upside down at his own request because he did not want to die and didn't feel worthy of dying in the same manner of Jesus. Now listen to what Jesus says to him after he says these things. He says this, and after saying this, Jesus says to Peter, follow me. That's got to be the worst recruiting moment in the history of the world, right? Peter, You're going to die. You're going to die a horrible death. There's going to come a day where people are going to dress you, and they're going to take you where you don't want to go, and it's going to be horrible, and you're going to do it for my sake. Follow me. There might be a few things that that have been like that in history. I could think of some moments, like maybe the the first troops that got off the transports on D-Day. You know, when their commanders told them, this is what we're going to do. I think there was probably a pretty good idea that this is it. We're going to do this, and we're going to die. I think of the Doolittle Raid. You know, if you know the Doolittle Raid, uh, the first, uh, you know, when they took the planes off the the boats uh, into Japan for the first time to just make, send a message, and these pilots were asked basically to sign up, to step forward and sign up for a mission that they were guaranteed you are not going to come home from. Now, some of them did. But they basically were said, you, you, this is a mission in which you are going to die. Are you willing to do this? And they stepped forward and said, yes, we're willing to do this. We're willing to die for something. For something that was significant, right? Something that mattered, right, in history. And yet those things don't come anywhere close. Those are serious moments that affect our lives to this very day. But they still don't hold the same weight and eternal significance of what Jesus is asking Peter to do. Jesus is asking Peter to die 
for something far greater. And in fact, there is no way, I thought about this, like, what, what do you have to, like, what are the internal things, what do you have to believe in order to actually hear words like this and say, I'm in, I'm going to do this. Think about your own life and faith. I, I, I wonder in my own life, am I, would, what, how would I respond to this? I don't know because I've never been put in this situation. You probably have not either, maybe. And some of you maybe have been close to these types of situations. But, the, but to, to, be, to be put in a place where I have to literally believe Jesus and know Jesus so much so that I'm willing to give up my life for him. Like the only way that you, that you do that is you have to truly know how glorious and how precious and how great Jesus really is. You really have to understand and know him, right? Like, you, you can't simply have a faith that's based on the cool preacher that preaches on Sunday morning or the awesome worship band that plays at the church and maybe the cool facilities and the cool programs. Like, if those are the things that make our faith feel really good and propped up, we're not going to give our lives, right? That's not enough. We need, we need a glorious and beautiful and incredible picture of Jesus. We need to believe that he really is the, the greatest treasure in the whole world. And there's nothing, not even your life or the life of your spouse or your children or your family, there's nothing more precious than him at all. That's what Peter would have had to believe, and that's what we need to believe in order to live this kind of life. And so Peter is addressing people who are in that very reality. They are facing that very reality. And when you face that kind of reality, what is the temptation? The temptation is to go, it was pretty fun up to this point, guys. It was a nice ride. I think I'm going to go over here. Or, or it's to say, Jesus is everything, and I'm all in. Whatever whatever he wants of my life. In fact, you notice what Jesus said, that the, the, the editor of John says, this was to show what kind of death Peter would glorify God with. You and I, in our faith, do we even think that way? This is the kind of death that I'm going to glorify God with. That my, my death is to the glory of God. Peter's death was to the glory of God. God used his death to highlight and to lift up the magnificence and the value and the worth of Jesus. Isn't that, like, I, I don't think that way on a daily basis, do you? I don't think about those kinds of things because I don't have to. I'm not put in those places very often where I have to, right? And so we pray and we press in. And this is what Peter is telling to some people who are in a difficulty. He's saying, he's saying look, here's, here's some things that I want you to know. And so Peter's going to do three things in this passage today that I think will help us and give us perspective. And the three things are he's going to remind them of God's unbelievable grace. Like he's just going to hold up. Here's, here's the gospel, church. Like here's what we need to know as Christians. Here's, here's this incredible reality that God has given to you graciously. And so he's going to paint this beautiful picture of God's grace. And then he's going to turn and say, okay, in light of this grace, in light of this grace, he's going to say, now, now here's what you need to do. In light of what God has done in you and is doing in you, okay, Here's, here's what you need to be doing then. Here's the, here's the way in which you press forward in your faith, right? And then he's going to say, and here's the reason why it matters. The implications are, here's why this matters. Here's what's at stake. Here's the reality of this. 
And so I want us to hear this this way, like to be encouraged today to go, here's this, this beautiful grace that God has, has just given to us without any merit or of, of any way in ourselves. He's just lavished upon us this unbelievable gift. And then, okay, in light of that, let's, let's press in. Let's do this. And, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And then here's why it matters is what Peter's going to do. And so I love the opening phrases of this letter, in fact. This is really tells us what Peter's aim is, right? He says, he says in verse 2, may the, may the, well, first of all, he says he's talking to people who have equal standing, right? See, in the, in, in the, in the church, in the, in the family of God, there's no, one, there's no one when it comes to your faith. There's no, like, hierarchy here. Well, you know, sometimes I know you say this to us as leaders or pastors. Well, pastor, you pray because you're closer to God. That's hogwash, Right? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have access to the throne room of grace at any moment, any time, and it's just as good as anybody sitting in this room, right? And so, so he's, he says here that he's talking to people who have obtained an equal standing, meaning that we are all equally justified before God. We are equally in right standing before God. In fact, he says, and how are we equally uh, in equal standing. He says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's by the righteousness of Christ. The reason why we're on equal footing when it comes to our faith is because it's not about us. Right? It's not about our smarts and our gifts and, and whether we are good speakers or bad speakers or terrified or we're, whatever. it doesn't matter any of that. It's because of the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's because of Him that we've been made righteous, and that's why we are all one in Christ. And so he says, and then he states his purpose. He says, so may the grace and peace, I like this word, may grace and peace be multiplied. I just imagine, like, he just wants it to be poured out more. May grace, this unmerited favor, and peace, this idea of shalom, meaning in the Bible this means a sense in which everything is as it ought to be. Everything is at, at peace, at rest, and, and so this idea of being in Christ is what it really means to have peace in your life because it means that things are in order. Things are rightly understood and seen and you have the right perspective. He says, may grace and may peace be multiplied to you. And how is it multiplied to us? In the knowledge of God and of our Lord, Jesus our Lord. It's beautiful. This is his aim for us. So this will be our aim today, right? That it would be multiplied today. The multiplication would just begin today. It would flow through your whole week. And it would just press in and pour over your life and flood your life. That it would come out of you everywhere you go. All right? So Peter, he begins by talking about this grace in verse 3. Verses 3 and 4. And he begins at the end and works his way backwards in this, in this whole thing. He's, he's telling them about God's grace. But he's going to start at the end. He's saying that his divine power... God's. I want you to know what the subject of this, these two verses are. It's God from start to finish. It's grace from start to finish. He says, his, God's divine power has granted to us. Notice that it's something that he has given to us. This is the grace of God, right? It's, it's a gift. He has granted this to you. You weren't seeking after it. You don't deserve it. But he just graciously is going to grant this to you. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things. If you have your Bibles, if you write in your Bible, which I do, like circle, underline, highlight, whatever you do, all things. His, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So he's starting at the end. He's saying, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, 
If you truly know God through Christ, he's saying you have everything you need then to actually live that out. God hasn't left you hanging out there. He hasn't left you ill-equipped. He has given you everything you need for life and godliness, which is a way of saying for everything that you need. He's given you everything you need for everything that you need to actually live a godly life, to actually be godly. This is true of you as a believer sitting here this morning. I don't think we sometimes think this way, however. I think we often see ourselves as a deficit. We don't often think about the fact that I have every time I wake up in the morning, I can just thank God that today he has equipped me and given me by his power every single thing I need in order to live today and display, put on display the very glory of God through my life to live for him, to display his character and his goodness. I have all that I need today to do that. No matter what comes at me, I have everything I need. God hasn't left me with partial equipment, failed, failed things. He has given us all things. And how has he given us these things? He says he's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through, again, here's this word that's going to come up many times, through the knowledge of him, through the knowledge of him, by knowing him. He says, through the knowledge of him who has called you. This isn't simply a calling, uh, the word calling here what refers to a vocation, like you're called to be a pastor, you're called to be a farmer, or you're called to be a nurse, or a doctor, or a store owner. This is not that kind of calling. This is the effectual calling of God that calls you to himself to be saved. He's saying he has, he has, you, you have been given everything for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called you effectually to himself, to, to his own glory and excellence. He has called you to himself that you would, as Paul would say in Second Corinthians, that you would see his glory, that you would be gripped by his glory, that you would be captivated by it, that you would, you would, be, you would see it so clearly as Peter clearly did to say, I am all in. And so he says, this, this who called you into his own glory and excellence, and how did he do this? Or, or the other implication of this, by which he has also granted, again, granted to us his precious and very great promises. His precious and very great promise. They're precious because of what they mean to us, and they're very great because the promises of God are immense and enormous, Right? starting in the Old Testament covenant, starting in the very first chapter of Genesis, but going all the way through all of redemption history, God has made promises, and he's kept promises, and he's done all of this for the sake of you, whom, he will want, he, whom he's calling to himself to be adopted into his family. He's fulfilled every promise so that that could be possible for you, so that you could have all the things you need for life and godliness. If you just think of the, the, when he talks about in the Old Testament, the prophets and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they s- describe the new covenant that was to come, that would be, that would be fulfilled, that would come into place through the blood of Jesus. He's, he's talking about something that God is going to do this. In the old covenant, it failed because, because we couldn't do it. But in this new covenant in Christ, cut by his blood, secured by the, the resurrection of Jesus, he's saying in this, God is going to do a work in you. He's going to give you all that you need. He's going to save you. He's going to put his spirit in you. And so these incredible promises, he says, so that, 
This, this sentence goes on forever, right? I love it. So that through them, through these promises, you may be partakers in the divine nature. See, it's through the very promises of God, all the way back to, to Genesis chapter 3, all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12, all the way through the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's through these incredible promises that you and I can be united to Christ, right? Because the fulfillment of those promises is Jesus Christ. And it's in Christ that we become partakers. We become one with Christ. He's talking about our union with Christ, that we become adopted into his family as, as true sons and daughters of God. And so we become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. See, now we're at the first part. Why is all this, why is all this necessary? because of sinful desires. It's because of sin, and it's because of the corruption in the world. And so if you take this the other way, it begins with the fact that we have, it, you could just go with creation, fall, redemption, glorification. It begins with the, the, that we are sinful, that we're in need of rescue. So if you walk back through these two verses and go back all the way to the first part, we're in need of rescue, and God sent the rescuer, who's Jesus, be, as, a, as a fulfillment of his promises. And all of those who've been called and, and then respond to that call by faith are united to Christ, and they are given by the power of God's Spirit everything they need for life and godliness, right? This is, this is what he's like holding up and just saying, this, this is this beautiful grace that God has given you. Here's what I want you to see in these two verses. It's not just your salvation that is a gift of grace. You notice this? It's not just that God saves you by grace through faith and it's not of yourselves, but a gift of God, not by works so that every, no one can boast. It's that your sanctification you're actually being made holy. That's what the idea of godliness. You're being made holy. That too is a gift of God's divine power and grace. I think sometimes as Christians, we have this really faulty idea that, that it's by grace that I'm saved. But once I am saved, now it's up to me to work really hard to be a good Christian. How's that working out for you? I can tell you how it works for me. <laughs> I fail every time, just like they did under the Old Covenant, because that is the Old Covenant. Right? And so, and so here, Peter is saying, is saying no, that, that sanctification and salvation are both a gift of God. It is God who is working in you that enables you to have all that you need to be able to live godly lives. He's doing this work. And so, so just imagine these Christians, they're, they're, they're facing all kinds of difficulties. And Peter just paints this unbelievable, glorious picture of his grace. And, and in fact, I, I, I say it this way. Somebody has said it this way to me over and over again. He says, grace is not opposed to effort, but it's opposed to earning. You see the difference? Grace in your life. I think sometimes as Christians, we think it's just God's grace. And so I'll just kick back and hang out, right? Now that God is so gracious and he's the one doing this, it's his divine power that's at work in me, both to save me and both to sanctify me. So I'm going to chill out and hang out for the rest of my life on this earth and just let God do some work, right? But that's never the way the Bible talks about it. That's exactly the opposite of what Peter is going to say here. Because Peter then turns around and says, okay, in light of this glorious grace, in light of God's gift of salvation, in light of his sanctifying work in your life that is all a gift of grace, in light of that now, he says, for this very reason, in fact, he says in verse 5, make every effort. Make every effort. That's a, in English, that sounds like, you know, make every effort, you know, you know press in. 
No, it, like Peter's actually saying this very emphatically. Like, no, 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 no. Because of this unbelievable grace that you've been given, like, like throw everything you've got at this. Like give it all you've got. See, the grace of God doesn't, doesn't cause us to live this stagnant, sedentary life. No, no, no. It calls us to action. If you truly understand God's grace this morning, if you really understand what Peter is saying here, and you are gripped by Christ and by his power at work in your life, it is going to call you to the very opposite of a sedentary, chill-out, hang-out life. I, I, wanna, I thought about this. I could get in trouble for this, but I'll say it. Um, I, had a, I had a 91-year-old person from another church call me this last week. And the leaders of that church are calling their members to, to just sort of re-up in terms of their commitment. Hey, are we in? Like, here's the membership covenant that we have. And the membership covenant was sent out to the church to say, hey, man, after COVID, things are crazy. Here's what we've committed to with one another. Are we, are we committed to that? You know, we do these things all the time. They're called renewal of vows. You know, couples do this all the time, right? It's no big deal. We do renewals of vows. And but I, was in, I was contacted by someone who's 91 years old. And it was the most discouraging conversation I had this week. This person was like, how dare they? How dare they? Calling me at 91 to serve the church. Calling me, like, how dare they question my commitment to the church? And so I was sent all the documents of what the pastor asked. It was beautifully written. It was a wonderful just invitation to go, hey, church, let's, are we with each other? Do we love each other? Are we willing to serve each other? It was like, I mean, any one of us could have signed on the dotted line today, man. It was like the basic things of what does it mean to be Christians? What does it mean to be committed to each other? And yet, and yet it seemed as though it was like, hey, I've put my time in. It's all good, man. I'm going to sit back here. Like, why are, you, why are you bugging me at 91? Because you're not dead yet. Amen. Can I say that? Like, right? None of us are dead yet. And until you are, Jesus is going to use your life. He is at work in your life. I don't care if you're five or you're 55 or 111, like the woman I talked to in Missoula, Montana a few weeks ago. Yeah, 111. The oldest person in America is 116, by the way. 111. It's crazy. It doesn't matter, right? We are called to be enamored by this glorious grace and therefore because of it to press in all the more, to give ourselves, to make every effort to, to grow in this grace, to grow in this godliness, to, to mature more and more and more. And if we get to the place where all we can do for the grace for the, for the life of the church is to pray for the church. Praise God for that gift. Then do it with everything you got, every strength, every breath you have until you have no more breath left. Give yourself to Jesus's mission. And so Peter turns here and he says, I want you to be in light of this grace, in light of this goodness, make every effort to do what? To grow in your faith, to grow in these qualities. Listen to these things. He says, he says to supplement your faith. Again, he's not saying that these things are what bring you to faith or these things are what save you. He's already told you about that. But now he's saying if, if this is true in your life, then he's saying, man, 
and press in and, and grow in it more and more and more. Or as Peter told, or Paul told Timothy, to fan in the flame. Like just, just keep growing in these things. And so he says, I want you to, to oh, oh, well, before I get into these virtues actually, think about this for a minute. Every quality and characteristic that is going to be described here, and I'm going to walk through these pretty fast. Every quality and every characteristic is a, is a characteristic of Jesus. It's a quality that Jesus himself perfectly displayed while on this earth. And so when Peter's saying this to them, he's saying, just, you're being formed into the image of Christ that you would be more and more like him in these qualities. These are the things that are crucial. And, and notice that also these are the very qualities that are either mocked by our culture or they are twisted by the culture and turned into something that they're actually not. And let me throw another thing in there. But on the other hand, when you and I actually genuinely display these things out in the culture, they are also drawn to them. They are drawn to them and ultimately drawn to Jesus, right? And so they mock these things on the one hand because it's really uncomfortable to be around somebody like this. And on the other hand, they take these very virtues, these very things, and they twist them. But when they're really displayed, oftentimes they are also longing for them because they've been made in the image of God. And so Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. This idea of virtue is moral excellence. He says, make every effort to, to supplement your, your, your faith, your, your, this, of this glorious grace, to supplement that with moral excellence, which in one sense just simply means to obey God at every turn, right? Let us, let us be people who read God's word we see what it says, we're moved by the Holy Spirit and convicted, and we bring our, line, our lives in line with it, and we live it out, right? It, it's that simple, and it's that difficult, right? This is, not, this is not also, by the way, this is not a holier-than-thou thing, like let us be absolutely perfect and not let anyone ever see that we got warts and problems and things in the closet. And No, no, that's not what it means to have moral excellence, because you know that that's not possible. You of all people know about your skeletons in the closet, right? You know of your weaknesses and your struggles, right? So we don't have to like somehow portray ourselves in these really perfect ways to people out there and make sure they don't see our faults because you know what that does for us? It causes them to look at us and go, those people aren't even real. Because we know they're not that perfect, right? They know it. I mean, you just have to ask your spouse or your kids, or see you when you hit your thumb with a hammer, right? There's all kinds of ways, or see how you spend your money, or see what you do when no one's looking, right? There's all kinds of things, but the reality is it's not a matter of like somehow portraying ourselves as being perfect and being morally superior to everybody else. That's not it. It's a matter of seeing God's word and loving it and wanting to obey it. And when we fail at it, we, we rightly simply confess that and we, we display and show the grace of God even in our failures. In fact, maybe more so in our failures than in all of our superiority things. And so we need, we, so he says here, I want you to add to your faith moral excellence, which means to be in obedience to God's word, to read it, to love it, to know it, and to do what it says in the power of God's spirit. Again, the sanctifying work is something that God has given you the ability to do. It's from him that you can actually have a, a life that is a, has moral excellence in it at all. It's because it's a gift that God is working in you. 
He says that we need to add to virtue knowledge. You can't, in fact, grow in moral excellence without knowledge. <laughs> without a knowledge of God, you won't know how to obey God, right? I always love, uh, I, somebody always say to me, they say, it's not about what we know about Jesus, it's about obeying him. I had people always say that in church planting things when I was doing I'm like, how can you obey him if you don't know him, Right? You have to press in. You need to gain knowledge, more and more understanding about the very character and nature of Christ, the character and nature of the gospel in order to actually be in obedience. of. So he says you need to grow in your knowledge. So add to virtue knowledge and knowledge of God. He says it several times in this passage. He says then we need to add to knowledge self-control, this sense of being sober-minded, to be not controlled by things out there, but to be controlled by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, to, to be under control in a sense, to have mastery over, right? And the only way that can happen, again, is through the power of God's Spirit. He says, add to self-control steadfastness, which is a, a term that simply means to, to persevere, to press on, to have a, I call it the stick-to-itiveness, right? Uh, some fortitude, right? But God has given us the ability through the power of His Spirit to be those who are steadfast in every way, not just toughness. When we think of steadfastness, we sometimes think of the, the tough guy. We think of the guy who can crawl on his belly for miles and, and you know, win wars and stuff like that. But that's, that's a, you know how much toughness and perseverance it takes to be a forgiving person? Right? It's not this bravado and this toughness and beating our chest. No, no, no. How tough is it? What do you need to have in terms of fortitude in your life and the power of the Spirit at work in you to forgive your enemies? To love that relative that you cannot stand. To be gracious to that coworker who drives you nuts. It takes incredible strength. It takes incredible perseverance. We need to add to self-control steadfastness. We need to add to that, he says, godliness. We need, which is really a way of just showing devotion, right? Godliness is another way in scripture to show we need to be holy. Right? There needs to be a holiness in our lives. And so he's saying here, we need, we, need to, we need to have, in fact, Timothy even said, he says that physical training of some, is of some value. Paul said this to Timothy. But godliness is of more value. Like it's good to be physically fit, but you need to be holy. Right? It's more valuable to have a life that is spiritually fit. And, and so the idea of being holy is really the idea of being devoted to God. Let us be those who are devoted to God at every single point in our lives. We're not perfect, but we're devoted to him. We seek to obey him. We, we are devoted to him at everything. And then he says, I want you to add to that brotherly affection. Brotherly affection. I love that he says this. This is family language, right? He's, he's saying it's not, it's not exclusive to sisters as well. This is not what he's saying. He's saying, but there's this sense of family, right? That we're family and we need to show this brotherly, this sisterly, this familial kind of affection for one another. In fact, in fact, Jesus said, as you know it, that they will know you are Christians by your, by your love, by how you actually love and care for one another, which is what he adds on to the end of this. He says, show brotherly affection press into this, have a genuine affection for the people of God, right? And then he says, add to that affection love, which almost seems redundant, right? But, but it's love. In fact, you could even see this in terms of how it's structured. Love is the thing that permeates, which Paul would say this, permeates the whole thing. Like if you don't have love, then none of this stuff matters. And so Peter is saying to them, look, because of this glorious grace, be diligent to press into these things. Make every effort to grow 
in your faith, to grow in these qualities. These are crucial qualities. As you grow in these things, you are putting on display the very, the very character of Christ. As these things grow in you. In fact, he says, what are the implications of this? In verse, uh, verse 8, it is. Look at verse 8. The implications. Why does this matter? He says, for if these qualities... These eight or so qualities. He says, if these qualities are yours. So we'll just stop there. Are these qualities yours? I didn't, I'm not saying, are you perfect in these things? Because we already know the answer to that. So we can all give an amen of no. (laughs) But are these qualities yours? Are these things that you, that there is evidence in your life, even if it's a scant amount of evidence and, you know, like, but if I was to be convicted in the court of law, there would be at least enough evidence to go, yeah, it's there. It needs to be worked on, but it's there, right? Are these qualities yours? And then he says, and increasing. I love that, right? Because he's, he's admitting that we're not, we're not, haven't arrived in these things. We're not done growing. We have a long way to go, Right? He's saying, are, are these qualities yours and are you growing? Are they increasing in your life? And, and if not today, if they're not yours, like if you're sitting here today and you're going, I, this isn't me at all, then I, I, I just want you to pause and just go, then maybe you need to pray for the grace of God to flood your life today. Pray for God to do such a gracious work in calling you to himself today that you would trust him with your whole life and you would begin to press into these things because of that grace. So pray that way. Pray for God to save you. Pray for God to work in you, to put his spirit into you, or to awaken you to this reality of God's gracious uh, gift. And so he says, if these things are increasing, that they're, if they're yours and they are increasing, why does this matter? He says it will keep you it will keep you uh, from being ineffective and unfruitful. Ineffective and unfruitful. How many of us signed up? We want to, you want to say, I want an ineffective and unfruitful life, right? Nobody signs up for that, right? That's not what we sign up for. I, I, none of us want that. I, I, we, we want our lives to be effective and fruitful. We want them to bear fruit, right? Jesus says, or Peter's saying here in this word, he's saying, if these qualities are yours and they are increasing, it will protect you from having an ineffective and unfruitful life. Because, as Romans 14 says, Paul would say that anything that you do apart from faith is sin. Anything that you do. That our whole life Every action, every moment is to be a, about Jesus, right? It's to be done. I live my life in faith, in trusting God. Every decision, every moment, every encounter, every word, everything is about him. And so he says here that, this, that there is, if, you're, if you're growing in these qualities, then you're going to be kept from being ineffective and unproductive. And in fact, you will then put on display for those around the very grace of God through your life. And love this, I love this. He says you'll be ineffective and you, you will... Be kept from being ineffective and unproductive in what? In your knowledge of God. There's that knowledge again. Do you get what that means? Faith is not just about what you know. Every one of us in here could take a quiz today and we could check some boxes. And I bet every one of us, we could put, you know, put a pretty clear little quiz. What does it mean to be a Christian? We could probably pass it. But does that mean you've been transformed? Right? We, 
It's not just about what you know. It's not about the boxes that you can check. True knowledge is knowledge that actually transforms your life. It's not the smartest person in the room that's the most faithful and godly person in the room. It's the person who is gripped by the grace of God so much so that it is transforming and changing their lives. That these qualities that he's talking about, these qualities of Jesus himself, are being displayed in our life more and more and more. That's when our knowledge of God is actually producing fruit and working, right? And so, and so he's saying here that it, it'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of God. Verse 10, or verse 9 actually. He says, for whoever lacks these qualities on the other side of it is nearsighted. In fact, he says he's so nearsighted that he's blind. Nearsightedness means that you, can, you only see what's really close, but you don't see the big picture. And what are you not seeing the big picture of here? You're, you're nearsighted, meaning that you cannot see. It makes you blind to the reality of God's forgiving grace. In fact, what it makes you is a jerk sometimes because you're unforgiving, you're ungrateful, you know the gospel, you know it's amazing, you can even talk about it really well, but in your actual life, you're judgmental, you look down at the neighbor, and you're not nice, right? That's nearsightedness because you've forgotten, you've forgotten what Peter started with which is this glorious grace that you're just blown away that God has not only saved you, but he's actually working in you, giving you everything you need for godliness in life, right? You've forgotten that. And he says, when you forget that, it's a dangerous place to be. He says, we become nearsighted, having forgotten that, we, that he was cleansed from his former sins. We can easily forget God's grace and we can become ungrateful people and we can become judgmental people and we can, we can be ineffective at displaying God's grace to others. Therefore, the last little thing here I'll close with, he says, therefore, I love this, be all the more diligent then. (laughs) It's like the final conclusion here. He comes back around and says, so be more diligent then. Like in light of that, like I don't want to be, in in light of the warning and the grace, right? In light of this beautiful picture of God's grace and the warning of you don't want to have an unfruitful life. You don't want to be so nearsighted and blind that you forget about your your sins being forgiven by this incredible sacrifice on the cross. You don't want to be that way. So therefore, be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. That really is an echo of James, right? In the book of James, right, he says, "You, you say you have faith. By what you believe, I'll show you my faith by what I do. In other words, James is saying, like, you, you, you believe? He even says, in fact, he says this crazy statement, right? He says, even Satan believes, right? But we know he's not saved, right? It's kind of this obvious thing. But he says, but he says how do we know that you have faith? Because there's evidence, right? There's, there's a transformed and a transforming life. There's something happening. And how do we know here? The evidence is these qualities are in you, and they're increasing, and they're growing. Right? And it's oftentimes by degree, by degree, by degree. Don't get discouraged. Like, God's at work. Sometimes it might feel like you're just growing by tiny, tiny bits. Well, the Bible even says that's the way it works, right? It's, it's sometimes slow, and sometimes we make a leap, and then sometimes we fall back, right? We, it's okay, right? God's not, he's not, he's, he's not forgotten his promise, right? He's at work in this. So keep pressing in. He says, so be all the more diligent to make your calling and your election sure. For if you practice these qualities, there is again, you will, I love this, you will never fall. 
Is that an amazing promise to you? Like, just, just take that home today. If you practice these qualities, not in order to earn God's favor, to be a good person, you're practicing these, practicing these qualities because you understand the greatness and the glory of God's grace in your life, that this is what he's doing in you. This is what he's given you the ability to do. So he says, if you practice these qualities in the power of his spirit based upon God's grace, you will never fall. Never. You may stumble. You're going to have bad days. But you will not fall because God will be, God is the one, right? If you go back to the beginning, who's the one who's sanctifying your life? It's him and he will not fail you. He will not fail you. He has not failed you and he will not fail you. His promises can be kept. He's true every single time. And so he says, just go all the more. Go all the more. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the ultimate reward. That at the end of this whole battle, this whole struggle of pressing in and growing, and at the end of all of this, even the tough days that these Christians are facing and any tough day you've ever faced in your life, Paul says these things won't even be worth comparing to the glory that we will have one day where we receive this incredible inheritance, right? In other words, he's saying, you're suffering right now. There's going to come a day in the presence of Jesus where the glory of this is going to make it seem as if this never happened at all. It's going to overshadow and outweigh it so much so that you're going to forget it entirely, and you're going to be enamored with this incredible inheritance in the presence of God. Amen? Amen? Man, pray for God to do this in us constantly. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you for this gift of life that you've given to us. Thank you for... Thank you for these words of Peter that I pray encourage us and strengthen us that, we would, that we, would, we would all the more go home and pray, God, this week, this week, God, would you remind us, as Paul, Peter says, remind us, stir us up by way of reminder about the grace, your grace towards us, both to save us and to sanctify us. And, and, in, and in God, I pray that you would just give us the diligence to press in and grow in this, Lord, that we would grow in these qualities, that they would be evident to everyone around us for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of this community, for the sake of nations knowing Jesus. Father, we pray, please do this in us every day, all the time. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.